This morning's sermon text is from the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, Weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Oh, Father, how much help we need. To preach and to hear and to believe and to live in the truth of Romans 8, 1. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Father, I pray for your help now. I pray for a, a riveting of our attention on the truth and on the Christ of the truth. I pray that you'd guard us from the evil one who is a liar and a deceiver and a distractor and a murderer from the beginning. We renounce him together in the name of Jesus over this sermon. And this day, our Lord's day. Make a way for the word, O God. To save sinners. To purify the defiled. To give hope to the despairing. And to stabilize the frightened. And to humble the proud and to guide the perplexed, and to heal the sick, and to reconcile the alienated. Make a way for your word, O God, to do a thousand things in this room and beyond. Let it not be spoken or read in vain. Come, Holy Spirit. Let it not be plucked up by the devil. Let it not be burned up by persecution. Or stress. Let it not be strangled and choked out by the cares of this world and the pleasure in other things, but let it find good soil now. Great soil, tiller God. Let it find good soil and bear fruit thirty, sixty, a hundredfold. Be exalted over this message, Father. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The more I thought about it, and the magnitude of the meaning of verse 1, the more I knew I had to linger one more week with you on verse 1. And so I apologize for the title that's given in the bulletin, which is mine and is not the title I would have given to this message, I would call it 
No condemnation for those who are in Christ, part two, which is where we were three weeks ago. And uh, you may remember that we focused then on the word now. There is therefore now no condemnation. And we said it has two implications. It is finally now and already now. Remember that? And the finally now meaning of verse 1 came from verse 3. What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. There's that word condemned. There is now no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. For finally now, after centuries of the law calling us to life, never giving life, Finally, now, a law fulfiller, a condemnation bearer has come into the world and has carried away our sins, has borne our condemnation, has become our righteousness. And finally, now, there is no condemnation for all who are in him by faith. What the law could not do. Finally, now, the one that the law foresaw has done it. And sin has been executed, condemned in the flesh. Finally, now. And the other meaning for now that we saw was already now in verses 33 and 34 of this chapter. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is to condemn? So there's the word condemn. No condemnation, verse 1. Now in verse 34, who is there to condemn? The answer to that is nobody. Why? Jesus Christ is he who died. So that's a picture of the final judgment. Who's going to bring any successful case? Who's going to be a successful prosecuting attorney against you at the last judgment? Answer, nobody. Why? Because you haven't committed any crimes? Wrong. Because there was a crime bearer, a sin bearer, Jesus Christ the righteous, who took it all. And that prosecuting attorney, whether it be your own conscience or the devil or the record of your own sins, will fail because the blood of Jesus will be brought forward in that courtroom and the righteousness of Christ will be presented in that courtroom and a verdict will be delivered, not guilty, righteous. And here's the already now. You mean, according to Romans 8.1, there is therefore now, already, no condemnation. That is, the verdict of the last day has already been delivered. 33 A.D.? Answer, yes. Already now, the final verdict that will be pronounced over you in the final courtroom before you enter into everlasting glory is over. If we could but 
grasp the magnificence of this verse. So I couldn't leave it. I couldn't leave it and just go to verse 2 because I haven't even spent any time lingering with you over the meaning of no condemnation now in your life in this world of sin and suffering. And that's what I want to do this morning. I want to try to address two obstacles. It's very hard to believe this. I mean, you think, you think the gospel's easy to believe because it's good news? The gospel is hard to believe because it's good news. It is so good, most of you don't believe it in its fullness. You don't. And you can tell you don't by how anxious you get about things. And how depressed you get about things. And how worried you get up in the morning and how guilty you go to bed at night. You don't believe this. So I want to help you believe it this morning. I want to try to, to breathe. You know, like you, a little, little flicker of, and the fireplace starts to go out and you go, that's what I want to do this morning to your, your flickering faith. Because hardly anybody really takes hold of Romans 8.1 and lives in that glory. No condemnation over you. So, I thought, as I looked at the scriptures and analyzed my own unbelief, that there are two big obstacles, maybe more, I'm sure more, but two big obstacles that get in the way of believing this truth. And I would like to address each of those biblically. And the first one is, but I keep sinning and I feel guilty when I sin. So how do I, what do I make of no condemnation when I keep sinning and I feel terrible because of it? What do I do with it? What do I make of it? That's the first obstacle. And the second one is, I get sick. And I've had loved ones who got really sick and they died. And when I get sick and when I am about to die, I feel like God's mad at me. And that I'm being punished when things go that bad. And it hurts that bad. So what do I do with no condemnation then? Those are my two obstacles. So let's see if we can address each of those one at a time. And maintain our faith or get our faith in this breathtaking good news. If you can find it, go with me. To Micah, chapter 7. That's an Old Testament minor prophet. You can look in the index if you need to. After Daniel comes Hosea, Jonah, Amos, then Obadiah. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. (laughs) Might flip in from the back of your Old Testament. Micah. Now, while you're looking, I'm going to set the stage for Micah 7. I was in uh, Jackson, Mississippi this week. 
at Reformed Theological Seminary, a missions conference, and I met a man there from Korea, and I asked him, his whole burden is North Korea. I mean, South Korea and North Korea couldn't be more different in their present condition as far as Christianity goes. And I, I said, what's the real state of affairs in North Korea? And he said, well, there's a very, very thin veneer of official Christendom that presents to the outside world some degree of tolerance in a few, two or three officially endorsed churches. But it is an illicit religion, real Christianity. There may be, he said, 80,000, 80,000 underground believers and the government is so concerned about this that in recent days they have actually issued orders that people expose, turn over, betray those whom they know in their families who are Christians. And he said it's happening that children are betraying parents to imprisonment or death. Now, you know, Jesus said that would happen, right? Mark 13, brother will betray brother to death, father his child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. That's how cold things can get. And he said that's happening. Those words of Jesus are taken from this text in Micah. But that's not what I want to focus on. I want to focus on what Micah says that makes that situation perhaps endurable if you're the Christian. And it's all about no condemnation. And a, a glimpse and a foretaste and a pointing toward that experience. So let's read Micah 7, verses 5 through 9. Do not trust in a neighbor. Do not have confidence in a friend. From her who lies in your bosom, guard your lips. For son treats father contemptuously. Daughter rises up against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. But as for me, I will watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Do not rejoice over me, O my enemy. Though I fall, I will rise. Though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is a light for me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my case and executes justice for me. He will bring me out to the light and I will see his righteousness. Now I preached a sermon on that in July 1988. Last time I asked on a Wednesday night how many remember the sermon, I think Randy Nadette raised his hand. 
But to me, it was one of the most memorable sermons I ever preached. I said that to Noel. I said, well, what you remember and what others remember aren't usually the same. (laughs) Because it made a tremendous impact on my life. And it does again now. I called it gutsy guilt. Some of you may remember that phrase. Gutsy guilt. And I want to hold up gutsy guilt to you. I don't know any other way to survive life. The betrayal of children, brothers, sisters, persecution, death, ministry, disappointment. I don't know any other way to survive life than gutsy guilt. These are jarring words in verses 8 and 9, and they are my answer to the question, what do you do if you keep on sinning and there's no condemnation in your life? What do you do? How do you think? How do you talk? How do you pray? How do you act? Let's read it slowly with comment. Verse 8. Do not rejoice over me, O my enemy. So this enemy's gloating here that he's down. The Christian, the saint is down, fallen, sinning. Do not rejoice over me, O my enemy. Though I fall, I will rise. So this is a temporary fall. Though I dwell in darkness. Yes, there are seasons of darkness and guilty feelings. The Lord is a light for me. This is the Lord who's angry. And has indignation. you got to be able to get this. You've got to have a category for this. The Lord who has indignation toward me because I've sinned against him is my light and my salvation. This is gutsy guilt. This is in your face standing when you fall. Verse 9, I will bear the indignation of the Lord. So the Lord's displeased. Clearly he's displeased with me, angry with me, but not the anger of a condemning judge. No way. It is the light Providing, disciplining father. He spanks. He says, go to your room. And wait for me. But he does not turn off the light of hope. Because I have sinned against him. So there's real sin. There's no doubt. There's no fakery here. This is real sin. He knows it. God knows it. And now comes these incredible words. Here's an angry God. Here's a God disciplining, spanking, sending to the room. I'm sitting under his indignation. I'm in the darkness and there's a light in my darkness. And then he says, I'm going to sit here and bear the indignation of God until he pleads my case. And executes justice for me. For me. And not against me. 
He's angry with me. There's darkness over my head. I've been sent to my room. I don't know how long I may have to stay here. But I will stay here. And He will be a light for me. And He will return to me. And He will bring me into the light. And He will become my defense attorney. And He will make a case against my sin and for me. And He will plead the blood of His Son for me. This is gutsy guilt. It's the only way to survive the Christian life. It's the only way to make progress in difficulty in life. He will bring me out, end of verse 9, He will bring me out to the light, and I will see His righteousness. And it will not condemn me. His righteousness will not condemn me. It will clothe me. Finally now, He's come. And we understand how such a text could be written. In the Old Testament. How could such a text be written? And now, finally, we have seen our sin bearer. So I commend to you how to think and how to act as a sinner saved by grace over whom there is now no condemnation. We have a father who is no longer our condemning judge. My conclusion as to what it means in Romans 8, 1, when it says, There is therefore now no condemnation, is that all punitive wrath is taken away. And in its place now there is only almighty mercy and omnipotent assistance. That's all there is in the heart of God toward you in Christ. Almighty mercy and omnipotent assistance. But he does not always treat you gently. He will always love you. And he will always be for you. And he will never be against you. So what do we do? We take our sins seriously. We don't. This man in Micah, nor the Apostle Paul in Romans 7, has a kind of breezy, cavalier attitude towards sin because there's no condemnation in my life. There's no breezy, cavalier, light-hearted, blow-it-off attitude towards my sin. No way. It is real. It is offensive to my father. It's a grief to my own soul. I feel terrible about it. It creates a darkness. It means he's in the living room crying perhaps. And I'm in my bedroom trying to get over my anger and my resentment and my sin. And I don't like it this way. He's my father. He didn't turn off the light. He didn't get out a knife. He just acted wisely towards this rebellious child. Loved me. Did what I needed to have done. So I accept the Father's displeasure. It hurts and I accept it. And I look away from myself to the cross. And if my enemy rejoices over me, my conscience, the devil, some person. If they rejoice over me, 
I say, rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I will rise. The Lord will be a light for me in my darkness. I will bear the indignation of the Lord until he pleads my case and executes justice for me. He's going to knock on that door. He's going to open it wide. It's going to be a big smile on his face. He's going to come in. He's going to take me up. He said, you learn your lesson yet? Let's go. We've got work to do. Come on. That's my life. Is it yours? You real? Or are you just blowing it off? Either I don't sin or they don't make any difference. Are you real? The Bible and the gospel of justification by faith enables us to be real. That's what I mean by gutsy guilt. There's no other way I know of to endure constant failings, to stay in a marriage for Jesus' sake, to stay a parent for Jesus' sake, to stay in ministry for Jesus' sake when you fail so often. Oh, Bethlehem, love the gospel. Love the gospel. Teenagers, love the gospel. Children, love the gospel. Old widows and widowers, love the gospel. Love the Christ of the gospel. Embrace this glorious truth and live in it. Live in the freedom of it. Get in the face of your depression. Get in the face of your guilt feelings. Get in the face of your accuser at work. And say, yes, I have sinned. Yes, I bear his indignation. No, he is not against me. Because I cleave to Jesus. And not my own righteousness. As my only hope. He will come. He'll show up in due time. And bring me out of the darkness into light. I'll see his righteousness. He'll reestablish me. He'll give me strength. And we will have a job to do. That's my answer to objection number one. Here's objection number two. What about when you're sick? This is hard. Really sick. You think you're getting better, then you get worse. Or you hear the doctor say, maybe four days, five days. Just got an email from a friend of my wife's, lived in Texas. The day after the attack, September 12, her husband died of Lou Gehrig's disease after eight months of gradual paralysis. She had written me earlier, and this was so sweet, it, it moved me to move on some plan I had to say, John, you, you will not. Imagine what the poems on Job have meant to us. And so she wrote us to say he's dead now and we're moving back. And I just thought of all the times. I mean, Lou Gehrig's disease is not an easy way to die. I just thought of all the times when surely he must have liked Job. Remember what Job said? Why have you become my enemy? Surely he must have often battled that thought. Why have you turned on me? I have tried. Yes, I'm a sinner and I have tried to hold fast to you and cleave to you. 
And it gets worse and worse. I think I'm getting better and it gets worse. And another part comes. Where are you and why have you become against me and my enemy? I just think anybody who gets sick, seriously sick, is going to battle with this. It will not feel like he loves you. It won't feel that way. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and get some word here. See, what, I, what I'm doing in this message is acknowledging that things are not the way they seem. And they often seem like what they are not. It'll often seem like he's against you when he's not against you. So what do you do if it seems like he's become your enemy and he hasn't become your enemy? What do you do? You've got to go to the Word of God and let it smash the seeming to smithereens. Oh, how many Christians live in the seeming of life. It seems this, and it seems this. I feel this, and I feel this. Well, so what? We should say with the authority of the Word of God, get in the face of your feelings, get in the face of the seemings, and pronounce the authoritative, inspired, divine Word of God over your life. It's the only way to fight with the authority of God, not the authority of your feelings. All right, now here's a tough text. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 28 to 32 is Paul's warning not to take the Lord's Supper lightly, but to examine yourself to see if you are trusting Christ. We're going to eat this supper next Sunday, and this will be lingering, and I'll probably come back to it next week. But let's read it. It is astonishing what it has to say about being sick and dying as judgment from God. A man must examine himself. In so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak. For what reason? Well, because you haven't handled the Lord's Supper rightly. These are Christians. Born again, no condemnation people. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep, that is, died. In other words, weakness, sickness, and death may be owing to the misuse of the Lord's Supper in a church. Verse 31, but if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. In other words, if we examined ourselves, renounced our sin, humbled ourselves, handled the, the ordinance with humility and trust, that wouldn't be happening. Verse 32, but when we are judged, like weakness and sickness and death, when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord. So here we have our Father disciplining again. We are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned. No condemnation now, I dread, while 
he kills me. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Make me weak, make me sick, make me die. No condemnation is my hope. Can you do that? You've got to be able to do that. You're going to die. You're going to die. And in the last minutes, it will not feel like love from your father. You must have authority from the word of God to interpret what is true and real. You can't take the seeming world at face value. The Bible will not have you take it at face value. We're going to get sick, all of us. Romans 8.23 makes it crystal clear. We who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit groan inwardly, waiting the redemption of our bodies. Nobody's got redemption of your body now. You're going to die, and sickness will precede it. How are you going to manage it? Now, let me make something crystal clear. This text is not saying, and I am not saying, that every sickness and every weakness and every death is owing to a specific crime or sin for which you are being judged. I am not saying that, and the text isn't saying that. I'm saying you might be judged for specific sins or attitudes if you get sick and die. And here is the glorious good news. Even if that is the reason you are sick, and even if that is the reason your life is taken from you, you get in the face of the sickness and the death and say, no condemnation for me. Because I cleave to Jesus, though I sit in darkness, the darkness of sickness as well as the darkness of sin, though I sit under the indignation of a sickness-giving God, I will not let go of my Savior. Then I will cleave to 1 Corinthians 11.32 that says, Though He judge me with weakness, sickness, and death, He is not condemning me with the world. Is not verse 32 both hard and sweet? Nobody wants to hear that God takes the life of His children. But everybody wants to hear that if He takes the life of His children, it is to spare them from being condemned with the world. He only has love. So I say it again, the main meaning over Romans 8.1 is that all punitive wrath of a judge condemning is gone from the people of God. And in its place there is now only almighty mercy and omnipotent assistance, though he handle me roughly. He loves me. He loves me. Which is one of the reasons, as a very small parenthesis, I believe in spanking children. They will never know God 
if they don't know the rod of their father who loves them and would die for them and kisses them and hugs them a hundred times more than he spanks them. Close parenthesis. Closing exhortation. Oh, Bethlehem. Job was wrong. He was wrong. He was wrong. God had not become his enemy. It's the point of the book. It's the point of the book. God had not become his enemy. And James 5.11 makes it crystal clear that God had not become his enemy. His purposes, it says, were compassionate, loving, merciful. And he hasn't become your enemy, Christian. God is never your enemy. I say never, 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 never the enemy of his people. He treats us roughly, sometimes, and gently, sometimes. Because we're not there yet. And He knows what we need. He knows how many deep waters we have to go through. He knows how many sins we have to be allowed to fall into. In order that we begin to see how desperately corrupt we are and how much we need His mercy and rely on it more and more. He knows when we need to live and when we need to die. He knows when he needs to spare us another decade of life and when he needs to give us another decade of life. Our Father knows us 10,000 times better than we do. Oh, beware of pronouncements about the goodness of God in your life. It is only good. He is only Good. When I preached on Ruth years ago, I didn't entitle the series Good and Bad Providences. I entitled it Sweet and Bitter Providences. All of God's providences are good. And they are merciful toward His people. They are omnipotently helpful. Towards his people. And the great challenge is to believe what is almost too good to be true. There is no condemnation over your life in Christ. There is no punitive wrath. There is no condemning judge. There is only almighty mercy and omnipotent assistance. So, Bethlehem. Can we believe this? Will we believe this? I plead with you, believe this, receive this, rest in this. Take this Jesus as your Savior, who provided a foundation, an unassailable, invincible foundation for this truth. You are not worth it. Jesus is worth it. In Him, God attends to you as one righteous before Him. Believe this. Trust this. Unbeliever who perhaps walked in here this morning, didn't know what Christianity was about, wondered what I would say. Now you know the very essence and heart of Christianity. Christ dies in the place of his people. All those who trust him, cleave to him, embrace him as the treasure of our lives are his people. We are in him, including you, if you do that right now. And in him, never again will God be against you. Ever. And everything that befalls you will be for you, for you, and not against you.
Let's pray. Father, help us, I pray, to live in this. Oh, how much help I need to live in this fearless, courageous, humble, brokenhearted boldness, contrite courage, childlike simplicity and faith, lion-hearted truth-telling and obedience. Witnessing at work, though we know we're a sinner and they've seen us have attitudes that we're ashamed of. and Now we see why we can still open our mouths. God, do this, I pray, as we go. Bless the Sunday school that comes. Let the children flourish. Let them grow up to be oaks of righteousness. Oh, God, children love the gospel. This didn't make sense. Ask your parents about it when you get home. Parents, get it. Live it. Teach it to the next generation. And all those who are in Christ said, Amen. Amen. Be dismissed.